As Earth Keepers, we hold wisdom about our planet within our bodies learned through lifetimes of experience on Earth and throughout the cosmos. I'm Amy Dempster, a shamanic practitioner and your host for the Earth Keepers podcast, and I'm on a journey to reconnect with my soul family, the other Earth Keepers, grid workers, portal tenders, land stewards, and nature lovers around the world. On this podcast, you won't find gurus or dogma, just a safe space where I share personal stories from my spiritual journey. Welcome back to the Earth Keepers podcast. If you've been following along here in season two, we've been exploring the sacred relationships between humans and plants. In the first few episodes, we talked all about the ancient past, including what it looked like to be in deep partnership with the plant kingdom, and also what happened to break those traditions. Over the past few weeks, we've been diving deep into what it means to bring plants back into our lives and reconnect with the inherent wisdom that they hold. We heard from Marcy Moberg about plants that visit our dreams and want to work with us, not just in the physical, but also in the etheric and from Becca Piastrelli about daily rituals and practices to work with plants and reconnect with our lineage. If you've missed any of the episodes in the season, definitely go back and listen after this episode so that you're all caught up. Now, in today's episode, we're going to talk more about working with plants in their natural environments, how they're being threatened, and what our role is as humans to protect them, or not. But before we get into today's episode, Let me just share that if you're feeling called into an even deeper relationship with our allies here on planet Earth, I would love to have you join me in the Earth Tenders Academy. Reclaiming our ancient ancestral connection with this planet and the spirits of the land and learning to speak their language can bring such a richness to our day-to-day experience here on Earth. If you want to learn more about the history and energy of the community that you live in, hold space for the healing of humanity and nature, remember more about your specific gifts and role with the earth, and see the true magic held in your everyday environment. I invite you to step into this portal with me and hundreds of other earth tenders from around the world. Click the link in the show notes to learn more about the Earth Tenders Academy and join our beautiful community. Okay, let's dive in. I think to begin this discussion, we need to acknowledge that we live in an ever-changing ecosystem. The climate here on Earth has been shifting since the beginning of time. It's part of the intelligence of our planet. Now, have humans created situations to throw the balanced ecosystem out of whack? Absolutely. As we discussed in episode 58, how we traded nature spirits for religious gods in ancient Europe, ever since man interpreted the directive that we have dominion over the earth as a free pass to use every resource here as we wish, while ignoring the obvious consequences of that decision, we've been digging and spraying and extracting our way to an incredibly damaged and polluted environment. But that's not what we're going to talk about today, because the big stuff often feels out of our control. And when we feel powerless to change things, we tend to do nothing at all. But collectively, we can have more impact than we think. Never mind the fact that what we can do just in our own backyard or immediate neighborhood can greatly impact the plant, bird, insect, and wildlife population right where we live. 
we tend to think about our impact in terms of people, as in, if I can help improve one other person's life, then I'll feel like I did my part. But what about plants? What if you could help restore a threatened species just by what you make room and habitat for? And what if that bit of plants played a host for a stressed insect population who's the primary diet of a particular bird species? It's pretty remarkable how much of an impact we actually can have. And next week, you'll hear from a guest who's going to really inspire you to do more of this work. But before we get there, let's talk some about our changing planet. Because whenever I hear the news headlines that are meant to inspire fear and panic about rising sea levels or greenhouse gas emissions, I think about my ancient European ancestors who would have experienced similar climate shifts. In the book, The Norse Shaman, author Evelyn C. Reisdick explains that the people of the Upper Paleolithic and Mesolithic ages around 14,000 years ago were living in an ice age with sea levels about 200 feet lower than they are today. That meant that much more coastal land was available for habitation. The European mainland was connected to Britain and southern Scandinavia at that time by roughly 29,000 square miles of dry land that today is submerged underwater. That area, known as Doggerland, was a fertile hunting and gathering territory of rolling plains with rivers, streams, lakes, and marshland. Doggerland also allowed people to travel back and forth to preferable climates at different times of the year. They would often spend winter in what is now France and Britain, and then relocate to the mid-coast of Norway for the summer months, following migration patterns of game and geographic progression of ripening plants. As a side note, I've also been thinking about this in terms of our nationwide housing shortage and the number of people who've become digital nomads in the last decade or so. Is this really a return to our lost roots in a very modern way? Maybe being a snowbird or having a less permanent home is really a function of our ancestral DNA being activated somewhere deep inside and reminding us that as humans, we rarely stayed in one place for as long as we do today. And that location flexibility is important as our climate shifts and changes. Just a thought. Anyhow, back to ancient Europe. Over a long period of time, the climate swung from warmer to cooler and back again, causing human, plant, and animal patterns to change dramatically, sometimes in a matter of a decade or a couple generations. Our ancestors had to adapt and change just as the planet was adapting and changing. During the Mesolithic period, glaciers were melting and the seas were rising three to six feet every hundred years. And then, 8,200 years ago, a series of events completely changed the landscape. An enormous glacial lake called Lake Agassiz suddenly released a massive amount of freshwater into the sea, raising global sea levels two feet and drowning what remained of Doggerland. Then a huge underwater landslide off the coast of Norway caused a tsunami that inundated the remaining coastline. The tsunami cut the ocean channel that separated Britain from Europe. Talk about dramatic change. I think about the group of people who were alive during this massive change. The people who walked back and forth over Doggerland following generations of their ancestors. And then in one fell swoop, or maybe two, they lost their hunting grounds, their food and medicinal plants, their ancestral burial grounds, and their access to their summer or winter homes. 
I can imagine them standing on the edge of whatever ground was still above water, looking across what is now the North Sea, knowing that they'll never see what's on the other side again in their lifetimes. And thinking about the grief that would have accompanied that loss. And yet humans were not wiped off the planet and life continued on. Plant, animal, and human life were certainly lost in that change. And perhaps there were species that became extinct. But certainly, life on Earth adapted. And this is a message that I've received from Spirit every time I've asked about it. As our planet shifts and changes, there are species that are no longer suitable for the climate that die off. But then new species adapted for life on the current Earth appear. In fact, every single year, thousands of new plant and animal species are discovered. Now, that number is somewhat misleading because it also includes the correction of taxonomic mistakes, movements from one family to another, and decisions that'll end up being overruled in future years. However, there are still new species found each and every year. Were they there all along, or did we just now find them? Or are they totally new plants and animals? In some cases, we'll never know. It's a bit of a chicken and egg situation. But when it comes to plants, there's about 2,000 new species that are found every year. In 2021 alone, researchers found an exotic milkweed plant growing alongside ancient Mayan cave paintings, a new laurel playing host to mites that fulfill essential ecosystem functions, and a new bellflower in Ecuador that flowers year-round, providing a constant source of food for nectar-feeding bats. So nature soldiers on, figuring out solutions for whatever problems it's presented with. I would argue that humans are part of this evolution too. It's just that we seem to be creating some of the problems that nature needs to adapt to, rather than seeing ourselves as a part of nature and naturally adapting. Humanity just keeps building more ways to escape or shield ourselves from a changing climate or escape from the planet altogether. So now what? If we accept that the climate is changing in our lifetimes and that through temperature extremes and weather changes, many of which have been caused by human activities and modifications, what are we supposed to do? What is our role in adapting and changing and preserving stories and memories for future generations? Are we just supposed to throw our hands in the air and ignore it? Or should we fight tooth and nail to preserve what we have? Although I don't have all the answers to these difficult questions, I do like to think that there's a middle ground. And that if we look for the opportunities to help along the plant species that have been unnecessarily decimated, they'll have the time and the space they need to adapt to the large-scale changes. And in the meanwhile, they might teach us a thing or two about how to adapt ourselves. So what does that look like? You can start by asking the land where you live what it's missing. Now, it may not tell you that it needs a specific tree or plant, but you might find out that it's missing a particular nutrient or that it needs more sun or shade or water or bird habitat. Take some time to sit quietly outside while holding this question in your mind. What is missing here? How can I, as a human with arms and legs, help bring this place back into balance? You might get pictures in your mind or specific messages while you're sitting there, but the information might flow to you in the coming days or weeks as an article you find online or a book someone recommends to you 
or a particular plant at the nursery that catches your attention. Keep your antenna up to hear the answers to your question. And even if you have a tiny apartment balcony, you can still help provide essential ecosystem functions in a small space. In fact, it might be even more important as large areas of native plants and trees may have been removed to build these large neighborhoods. And there are likely birds and insects who would love to have some habitat back. Years ago, I lived in a second story apartment and made the deck off of my bedroom into a bit of an oasis. I thought I was doing it for myself at the time, but I couldn't believe the amount of life that joined me on that little elevated spot. I had a large planter that I put an evergreen tree in, and I also had a trickling water fountain to help drown out the neighborhood noise. But the sound of water attracts birds, and that's exactly what happened. A dove laid her nest in one of my flower pots and raised multiple sets of babies there one year. And hummingbirds would flit around my head as I sat out there in the evenings. And who knows what else that little deck was supporting in the middle of suburbia. So don't be discouraged by a lack of space. Honestly, sometimes I feel more overwhelmed by having five acres because projects often need to happen on a large scale that includes renting equipment or weeks of backbreaking work. That being said, my focus this summer is to create one new planting bed along the backside of our house to grow native and medicinal plants, which is a totally doable project for me. So wherever you live, just keep making progress, one little project at a time. You'll be amazed at what you can accomplish in just a few seasons. Okay, so outside of asking the land itself, how else can you find out what might be missing from your landscape? Look around for areas in your community where the native ecosystem may have been preserved or restored. It might be at a park or an arboretum or even a university campus. You want to find an example of what your area of the world looked like before settlement. What plant communities thrived there? What plants did the indigenous people use for food and medicine? Of course, you can likely find field guides or websites that will give you plant lists, and that's super helpful. But if you can find an actual example to visit, that will help you understand how all of these different plants like to grow together in the wild. My favorite spot that I share about often, Krauss Basin, is a section of old growth forest that wasn't logged in the 1960s like the rest of Northwest Montana was. Of course, there's also examples in Glacier National Park that I could go see. And these areas look and feel completely different from the forest on my five acres that was logged and replanted with a monocrop of Douglas fir. In fact, most woodland plant species don't survive logging or large-scale earthworks. This is an example of human destruction of species that has nothing to do with whether or not the climate is changing. And we can help restore some of these plant communities in less time than the typical ecological succession, which would take more like 300 years before some of these species would return on their own. So seeing them in their natural state helps me understand not only what big trees are missing from my landscape, along with understory trees, shrubs, and perennial plants, but also the little woodland plants and ferns and flowers, along with which mushrooms grow on the downed logs. So if you can find an example of a functioning native ecosystem in your area, go visit it. And visit it in all different seasons to see the different plants that pop up at different times of the year. Not to mention what birds and insects and animals you might spot. 
When you do visit, take some time to sit quietly in that place too. How does the energy feel compared to your current yard? Can you feel more elementals and nature spirits present there? Do they have any suggestions on how you can work with some of these plants? Are there any particular plants that are really catching your attention? Because maybe they want to work with you on an even deeper level. You might also find that there are plants that are missing from that ecosystem too. Plants that have been overforaged and taken for profit without a thought about if their population would be damaged beyond repair. Maybe you can help restore some of these plants to the place that they belong. As we begin to engage with the land this way, the spirits of the land will take notice. They see us as partners in this work and are eager to help us. So once you identify some of the plants that might be missing in your own landscape or in your community in general, do some research on them. What role do they play in the ecosystem? What other plants do they typically grow nearby? Now, if you have a local bookshop or a native plant society nearby, you might check to find books or resources that have been written by local authors. I have an awesome book for the Rocky Mountains, but specifically for the Montana Rockies called the Eco Herbalist Handbook that I'll link in the show notes. It's written from the perspective of an herbalist and forager who was seeing how plant communities were being overharvested or trampled or wiped out over the decades. And he decided to write this guide to help people not just identify the plants and how to use them, but how threatened they are. Finding resources like that can help us learn what plant species we're putting too much pressure on as humans and learn what alternatives there might be in an abundant supply instead. Ultimately, these plants want to work with us. As we discussed in the episode with Marcy Moberg, they have an incredibly long memory of working with and supporting humans. And often we only need a small amount of a plant for our personal herbal cupboard to last us for years. Now, one final note on this topic. Just because a plant is extinct or missing from our landscape doesn't mean we can't work with it. Remember that they still exist in some other timeline and we can access them energetically. If you're curious about this, sit in meditation and ask the keeper of the land to show you a plant that no longer exists in this timeline, but wants to work with you. You might be surprised at what you find. Take some time to draw a picture of this plant. Ask about its qualities and how it wants to work with you and make some notes in your Materia Medica journal. Plants can absolutely work with us across space and time. You can place a glass of water over your drawing and the details of this plant and ask it to infuse its energy into the water so that you have a flower or plant essence of this plant that technically no longer exists on this plane. Then you can drink the essence or put it in a spray bottle to spritz over you or add the water to your garden and see what happens. And although I haven't experienced an extinct plant appearing on the land here, I have experienced plants that were nowhere to be found the first few years I lived here suddenly appearing after a couple of years of energy work with the spirits of the land. Each year, I've found more plants that are in the old growth forest suddenly appearing on my logged land without any physical intervention or planting on my part. So yes, energy work really does have an impact on the land. And I can't wait to hear your stories about how this is happening to you too. Now, speaking of stories, we've had some great discussion in the Following Hawks Earth Keepers community on Facebook about weeds and noxious plants after episode 59 on releasing plant prejudices aired. 
I love seeing all of your knowledge and experience about working with these plants that have been labeled as nuisances or toxic. We actually had an interesting discussion in our Earth Tenders Academy office hours call last month talking about the different messages these plants have for us. But Therese in our group shared that on her land in Washington state, she had planted over a hundred different conifers trying to replace what was logged in the 1980s. And most of what she planted had died. And they also have purple knapweed on their property, a plant listed as noxious because it has a chemical that discourages grasses from growing. So they always mowed or pulled these plants to keep them from going to seed. But she has since learned that in suppressing the grasses, what purple knapweed is actually doing is creating an environment where conifer seeds can germinate. And now that she's leaving the knapweed alone, there are conifers sprouting on their own and being fed and cared for by the established trees that are still in the area. Pretty cool, right? Knapweed is a plant that's listed as noxious in our area too. But after hearing Teresa's story, I started thinking about where it grows on our land. It's in the sunny open areas, not on the forest floor where large stands of conifers are already growing. So as it turns out, knapweed might just be a part of the ecological succession of the forest, setting the stage for conifers to germinate and return to an area after it's been logged or burned or disturbed. Just another example of how there's more than meets the eye to many of these plants, not to mention the intelligence of the entire ecosystem. I'm so happy to hear how you're connecting with and learning from these beautiful plant allies. Next week, I'll be sharing an interview with modern-day druid Dana O'Driscoll, who will share her specific practices for restoring plant communities and working with the magic of the forest. Of course, if you're feeling like the Earth Tenders Academy could support you on your journey, don't forget to check out the link in the show notes. In the meantime, thank you for listening, and thanks for being here on the earth at this moment in time. I will see you back here next Tuesday. Thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to the Earth Keepers podcast. I'm so honored to share this journey with you. I would love it if you join me and other Earth Keepers from around the world in the Following Hawks Earth Keepers community on Facebook. To find the show notes, additional resources, or learn more about working with me, go to earthkeeperspodcast.com. Until next time, I'll see you in the multiverse.